1624, the Dutch West India Company sent approximately 30 families to settle on an island at the mouth of the Hudson River on the east coast of North America. The first island they settled on is today called Governor's Island, and they named that settlement New Amsterdam. But within just a few years, Governor's Island proved to be too small, and the settlement moved to the southern tip of a larger island just to the north, an island that the Lenape natives that lived there called Manahata, meaning Island of Many Hills. The Dutch, and later the English inhabitants of the area, called it Manhattan. To the north across the Harlem River, a native of Sweden, Jonas Bronck, and his Dutch wife settled a farm in 1642 along a river that the other residents of New Amsterdam began to call the Bronx River. And over time, the area became known as just the Bronx. To the south of Manhattan, on a much larger island, in between 1639 and 1661, small groups of Dutch Walloons and French Huguenot settlers established farms and settlements. They named the island Staten General Island, after the Dutch Parliament, the Staten General, eventually dropping from the name General, and it just became Staten Island, or Staten Island. In 1664, the English conquered the area, and they renamed the entirety of it New York, for the Duke of York, James Stuart, the younger brother of King Charles II. A large part of the western tip of Long Island was named King's County, in honor of the King, and the largest portion of the eastern part of King's County was called Queens, in honor of Charles's wife, Catherine. But there were already a number of small towns in the western half of Kings County settled by the Dutch between 1645 and 1661, including Gravesend, New Amsterfort, that later became the Flatlands, Midwood, meaning Midwood, which eventually became Flatbush, New Utrecht, which became Bensonhurst, there was Bushwick, another village, and the villages of Bedford and Stuyvesant. And then there was Rabbit Island, better known by its Dutch name, Coney Island. But the entire area where all of these settlements were established was known by another name. The Dutch named the area after its marshlands, Brooklyn. And today, we call it Brooklyn. This is episode 38. Welcome to the Bruise Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman. Thank you, Jessica, and hello, everybody. Welcome to the Bruise Traveler. Thank you for finding us out here in the podcasting universe. I am Alan Tatman, and I'll be your host for the next 50 minutes or so. And I'm a little late getting this episode out. Uh, I was kind of busy this last week. I had a lot of stuff going on. And so uh, instead of getting out on Thursday or Friday like I normally do, this is coming to you very early on Monday morning. And one of the reasons I was so busy last week is because we were getting back uh, from uh, our trip to New York City. And had a lot of things that were on my plate that I needed to take care of. And you can probably also hear in my voice, I'm not 100%. I was a little tired and worn down. So I thought, you know what? You guys are cool. 
you'll hold off until Monday so I can get the show out to you, and it'll be a much better production than if I'd have been left to my own devices last Wednesday or Thursday night. So anyway, this week on the podcast, we're talking to Brooklyn Brewery in the Williamsburg neighborhood of the largest borough of New York City, Brooklyn which is actually the city within the city of New York. If the five boroughs of New York City were divided into their own cities, Brooklyn would be the third largest city in the United States after Los Angeles and Chicago. And we will be talking to Will Ardvinson, the tasting room manager of the Brooklyn Brewery. It's one of the largest and most widely distributed American craft beers, not only in the United States, but also around the world. Freelance journalist Tony Rehagen has a story for us on aged beers and how long can you keep your craft beer in your beer fridge and all of that and see if it's still good. And uh, next week, I'm heading to Northwest Arkansas, or I should say this week now, Oklahoma and Texas, along with, uh, I'm taking Cody with me, and then Marilee's coming down to join me uh, later in the week. And we are going on to Austin, San Antonio, Corpus Christi, Galveston, uh, Louisiana, New Orleans, Natchez, Mississippi, uh, before we head back home. So keep up with the travels of Brew Lissies, myself, Cody, and Mary Lee. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at the Brews Traveler Podcast. And keep up with us in the places where we'll be having some pints. But first, before we get into all that, let's take a quick look at the history of Brooklyn, New York, and brewing in New York City's most populous borough. <music> And now we head on down the road with the Bruce Traveler. Where will the highway take us this week? Where will we lift a pint and who will we meet? Let's find out. We here in the Midwest, we often feel slighted because folks that live in the states on the east and west coast just kind of, uh, well, they see us all as the same thing. You know, a bunch of rubes, rednecks, hillbillies, cowboys, sodbusters, uh, between the two mountains and flyover country. As Norm Peterson, was when he was asked where his wife's family came from, he responded, I don't know, one of those big square states out west. But by the same token, we here, we kind of think all major cities along the northeast coast are more or less the same. Baltimore, Philadelphia, Boston, New York, just big cities full of rude people. And I'm here to say that that stereotype is just as narrow-minded as putting a broad brush to everything between the Appalachian and the Rocky Mountains. And in New York City, there are five distinct boroughs, and somewhere between 250 and 300 individually unique neighborhoods. Now, when most of us think of New York City, we think of the Statue of Liberty, the Empire State Building, Times Square, Central Park, the Yankees in the Bronx, the Mets in Queens. But truly, the heart of New York City, both figuratively geographically, and literally, is the borough of Brooklyn. Brooklyn is a city within itself, made up of 34 neighborhoods that distinctly developed over time since those first Dutch settlements and farms were established on the western end of Long Island in the first half of the 17th century. Most of it's gone over massive changes over the years, and it's still evolving. Today, Brooklyn is seen as the home of cultural diversity and gentrification. The neighborhood of Williamsburg, the home of Brooklyn Brewery, was for years an industrial manufacturing sector with pockets of immigrant communities. But beginning in the 1970s, the manufacturing in the area began to move out and a new group of settlers came in. 
artists, writers, musicians, looking for cheap rent and open spaces. They came into Williamsburg in the 1980s and 90s. And one of those people who was looking for just such a place was Steve Hindi, a journalist and war correspondent specializing in Middle Eastern politics who was ready to change careers and become a brewer. And he established the Brooklyn Brewery along with his friend Tom Potter. And they eventually ended up in Williamsburg, but more on that in just a bit. The brewing of beer in Brooklyn has a long history, going back to the first Dutch settlers at the mouth of the Hudson River. By the end of the 19th century, there were 45 breweries in Brooklyn alone, including 11 breweries in the Williamsburg neighborhood. Brooklyn was one of the major brewing capitals of the northeastern part of the United States, as big a beer town as Milwaukee or St. Louis, with iconic brands like Orion Gold and Schaefer leading the way. But by 1910, the number of Brooklyn breweries had dropped from 45 to 31. And on the eve of Prohibition, there were only 23. And after repeal, there were only nine breweries left in the borough. But still, even with that decline, by 1960, Brooklyn was producing one-tenth of all the beer in the United States. And it controlled two-thirds of the local Northeast market. But the writing was on the wall, and by 1976... Like the beloved Dodgers baseball team from 20 years earlier, they'd all left, or like Ebbets Field, had been closed and torn down. But leading the way in 1996, Steve Hendy and Tom Potter brought the Brooklyn Brewery to Williamsburg, leading the way for other craft breweries into Brooklyn, including Six Point Craft Ales in the Red Point neighborhood and Green Point Beer in Clinton Hill. Setting up shop in a former matzah factory, Williamsburg had a strong Orthodox Jewish community for years and still has a vibrant and active one today. And that building was previously an ornamental ironworks foundry. The Brooklyn Brewery opened its doors to a community ready for good beer. So, let's meet Will Ardvitson, tasting room manager for the Brooklyn Brewery, and learn more about this absolutely fascinating story behind this great American brewery and so here it is, your interview of the week. Hello, everybody, coming to you from the Williamsburg neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York, that other city across the river from Manhattan. And I am here at Brooklyn Brewery with Will Ardvitson. He is the tasting room manager. And Will, thank you so much yeah, for you. having us on a beautiful Sunday afternoon, a spring afternoon in uh, the city known for so much more than just being <laughs> New York's neighbor. Yeah. Uh, cheers. Cheers to you, man. Yeah. Thanks. I'm Thanks drinking here your uh, Bel Air Sour. This is very nice. Uh, it's a little higher ABV than a lot of Berlin. This a, yeah, it's not a Berliner, a true Berliner Weiss. Yeah, it's a little higher ABV, which is fine with me. I don't. Yeah. I'm, I'm taking the subway, so I don't need to worry about driving today. So. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> uh, how long have you been here with uh, so, Brooklyn Brewery? Yeah, I was hired in April of 2016 as a bartender, tour guide. I had tour guide experience in Central Park. I was leading bicycle groups through uh, Central Park and surrounding environs and neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was a fun job, especially when the weather was nice, but uh, not so fun when it was 99 degrees and you're on a bike all day and going uphill and downhill. Well, downhill was easier. 
Um, but yeah, so I was here for two years bartending, and then eventually a management position opened up, and I was considered, and ultimately was hired. So yeah. you guys have a fascinating backstory about the creation of this brewery uh, with the founder, Steve Hindy. Hin yeah, Steve Hindy and Tom Potter. And, Tom po and Steve used to be, uh, he was a Middle East correspondent for the Associated Press, yeah. right? Yeah. So how did this all come about? Hmm. Funny you ask. Mm -hmm. uh, so... Yeah, Steve Hindy was a war correspondent. His uh, background is in journalism. Um, and Tom Potter was an investment banker for Chemical Bank back in the 80s. So they, they had uh, very different or uh, different backgrounds or origins than you would assume. But I think a lot of different craft breweries across the country have, have that suits to boots tale right. or story to their origin. Um, I think that's part of the entrepreneurial spirit of craft beer, especially in the U.S., this idea of uh, let's let's change things from the bottom up. But Steve, yeah, he was a war correspondent from 1979 to 1984. He was over in the Middle East. Uh, he took his family over there. He took his wife. He fathered two kids while on assignment, and those were dangerous assignments because he was in the places where fighting was happening. Um, so he was in the thick of things, pretty uh, pretty rough. In 1980, he was actually kidnapped and southern Lebanon. Holy cow. Yeah. He was kidnapped with three other Irish UN peacekeepers. And two of those men uh, didn't make it out. They were tortured. They were executed. Uh, they also tortured uh, the third gentleman. Um, thankfully, both him and Steve were released. Steve actually had to carry him in his arms to safety uh, when they were released. Uh, so that was 1980. And then in 1981, Steve was in Cairo, in Egypt. He was doing a piece on Anwar Sadat, who was then the president of Egypt. And he was uh, at a military ceremony where Anwar Sadat was supposed to speak. And he, he was sitting not too far behind Anwar Oh my! Really? Sadat. Um, when I guess you know the end oh, of the Oh, I remember he was, that. I he was, was assassinated. Yeah, I was, I was just out of high school. I yeah. wasn't in college yet. But I remember that. That was, that was horrible after all that they had done toward the peace process with Anwar Sadat and, and the Israelis, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So he, he was right there. He was right there. Holy He cow. actually had to play dead. Eleven other people were shot and killed around him. So, yeah. Oh my, my, yeah. My, my gosh. You can, you can imagine thought, a stressful uh, gig. I thought <laughs> what I read on there was a piece of shrapnel flew into where he was. Well, that, that also that happened. happened. And yeah. I thought, well, that's bad enough. Yeah. But now he was... He, he, along with UN peacekeepers from Ireland, yeah. were taken by Hezbollah, do you know? Yes. Taken by Hezbollah, and then he, he got out of that, and then he is with Anwar Sadat when he's assassinated. Yeah, he is present for that assassination. Does that man walk around these these floors? He does. He's still, he's still here. He's still uh, chairman of the board. Um, and he's a pretty humble guy, pretty quiet. Well, most, very nice. I have found that most people that go through those kinds of things, they tend to be humble guys. Yeah. They tend to be, they, you know, they're thankful for what they've got and what they've been able to do because they have, they've experienced things that you and I have no idea what that's about, right? Yeah. yeah so, wow, that that's incredible. Mm -hmm. So anyway, he was there in the Middle East with all this. And um, so from, yeah, 1979 to 1984, and, um, you know, he finds himself here and there in countries that are dry. You know, it's the Middle East. So there are inevitably, um, he's going to be on assignment. He's going to be looking for a beer after a tough day. 
as you can imagine. So part of uh, the culture out there, especially among journalists and people who represented different Western interests, um, was a small network of underground home brewers brewing in their hotel rooms and, uh, and apartments. And this is sort of how Steve Hindi developed a taste for the good stuff, the stuff that we would eventually know as craft beer. Back then, wasn't it was a just right. homebrew? It was homebrew, right? But you know the types of chewy stouts and and beer made with Belgian ale yeast and stuff that wasn't commercially available uh, in the popular sense back home during that time. So this is how he's really uh, developing a passion for beer by by drinking beer with these folks after a long day. Okay. So and then by 1984, as you had mentioned, um, Steve was with his family. He's in Beirut. Um, and the hotel that they're staying at and the surrounding area um, gets hit with some mortar fire. Um, there's a lot of damage. Fortunately, nobody's killed in the attack. Uh, but it's one of those moments where Steve and, and his wife, Ellen, they, they walk out and Steve goes, wow, that was close. And he picks up a piece of shrapnel that he still has. You mentioned it. still on his desk. It's a reminder of where he's come from. Uh, his wife is not very impressed, doesn't want the souvenir. She says, you know what, we've had enough of this. It's time that we pack up and move to the U.S. And if you're not on board, well, then, you know, good luck. Right. Perpetuity, you know. So I think Steve has that, that moment where he's considering which way to go and inevitably makes that the right decision. Uh, he comes back to the States with his family. But before he left, his buddies in the Associated Press gifted him a homebrew kit sort of a parting gift. He said, like, you drank enough of our beer, now it's time to make some of your own. So when he got back to Brooklyn, he's living in uh, Park Slope, Brooklyn at the time, and he's homebrewing. Uh, not too much success at first. I think everybody or anybody who's Yeah, I was a terrible homebrewer. Uh, I yeah. haven't started yet, so I... I, 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 was, I was horrible. <laughs> That's why I bought a pub. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but eventually he does get pretty good. He's brewing brown ale. I think a lot of people start off that way. Right. Uh, he's brewing brown, and one of his favorite pastimes is to share that beer uh, with friends. So at the time, he's now an editor for Newsday out in Long Island. He's got to travel all the way out to Long Island each day and then come back. He's you know, enjoying uh, beer with buddies. One of those buddies is his downstairs neighbor, Tom Potter, who, as I, I think I mentioned, is uh, at the time an investment banker with Chemical Bank. So he doesn't have a beer background. but. He's enthusiastic about right. beer, as we all are. He's also enthusiastic about the Mets at this point, because it's in this point in the story, it's 1986. Yeah, so. I, I, I remember those years being a Cardinals fan. <laughs> we we were we, we in the Mets in the in the National League East. It was back and forth, yeah. back and forth. Yeah. It, it's a great rivalry, and I'm sure. really sorry they split those two teams apart well, and put them in separate divisions, because that was one yeah. of the best rivalries in baseball. Yeah, it really was. Well, I mean, and also that '86 for any you know Mets fan knows that's you know golden years, uh, good times. Um, but yeah, the guys are watching games together, uh, they're drinking, and one of the things they would do is, uh, while both their kids were playing in the backyard, they had a black and white TV, they'd watch you know, Mets games together, drink some homebrew. And I think like, like any person, self-respect, well, I don't think I do this, but they were complaining about their jobs, right? They were complaining about their jobs one day, and Steve has this moment where he's like, well, Tom, you know what, if I'm, if I'm so good at making beer, you have a business degree from Columbia University, you're a smart guy, what if we put our heads together, we start making beer professionally? And Tom's like, no, that's a bad idea, because <laughs> it's the 80s, 
And at this point, I think we have about you know, we're fewer than a hundred breweries yeah. left right. in the United States. They're not. We're not growing a thriving craft beer industry yet. If anything, they're going away. Uh, so Tom doesn't really see the dollar signs, but Steve kind of sees what's on the horizon, and he says, "Well, you know what? Why don't you attend a craft brewers conference this year? I'll pay for your plane ticket to fly out to Portland." Uh, go out there, meet some people in the industry. If you're not convinced, come back home. We'll, I don't know, start a rock band, do something different. I don't know. Change it. So uh, Tom agrees, and he flies out to Portland that year, and he, he meets a lot of people in the industry. And I think what he had going for him was the Chemical Bank connection. He showed up. Right. All these guys, are they have the beards. They have the boots. Uh, he's in a, in a nice suit. He's got the business cards that say Chemical Bank, so I think he becomes a pretty popular guy pretty fast because sure. people see dollar signs. So he starts talking to people, and I think what impressed him more than anything was the amount of camaraderie that existed among these competitors, essentially. He's used to Wall Street. Mm -hmm. This is something different. Right. This is something uh, much different than he's used to, uh, besides the fact that he's getting free beer and he's, you know, I'm sure right. fairly intoxicated. Uh, so he flies back, and the guys start drawing up a business plan they start raising money uh, and I think they were thankful enough to have friends family and some angel investors who really believed in them and they were able to raise uh, $500,000 which was substantial enough to uh, start brewing under contract um, and that's essentially how we got started we were a contract brewery uh, the same as some of the other big guys right you know, Boston Beer Company and um, so we started brewing beer in, uh, in Utica at the FX Matt Brewery back in 88. That's essentially where we got started. We had uh, you know, a base here in Brooklyn, our, our offices, warehouse, um, for the sake of distribution. But that's where we were making beer. We're still making beer there. We in make Utica? About, yeah, yeah, we do about 65% of our production. How far is Utica from, this, uh, from Brooklyn? <sighs> if you were to drive, it's, I think it's about a four-hour drive. Wow, I knew it was a ways. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a bit of a hike. I mean, depending on traffic, sometimes for me to get from point A to point B in Brooklyn, it takes me an hour. Okay. So sometimes it's hard to say. Okay. But yeah, it's about it's about four hours. It's not close, oh. for okay. sure. But actually, uh, interestingly enough, Tom and Steve, they, they tapped Yingling back in the 80s to see if they were interested in uh, right. doing some contract brewing for us, and, and they weren't, even though they weren't doing so hot in the 80s. No. They no, said, uh, no thanks. <laughs> we're going to concentrate on ourselves. It worked out for them. Yeah. Uh, clearly. But, yeah, so that was essentially uh, how we got started. We didn't really start brewing. Uh, we didn't start brewing beer here until 96 in Brooklyn at this location. Well, that's still, that's 23 years. I mean, yeah. that's that's not that's not a short amount of time. No, it's it's not. But it's um, it, it's funny how in only 23 years how, how much this neighborhood has changed and how not only this neighborhood, but the, the craft beer landscape has changed so much. There's been a lot of radical change. Steve, Steve originally from Brooklyn? Uh, no, he's from, the, he's from Ohio. Oh, okay. Um, he's from the Midwest. So, yeah, not, not Brooklyn born and raised, but I think as... But as naturalized. A, yeah, yeah, as, as so many of us are, uh, especially being a journalist. You know. Right, right. So, I know you got, you've got a big presence here in the community. I mean, yeah. we got off the... We got off the Bedford uh, L stop there, and uh, I my I was getting no signal on my phone, and I asked uh, the lady. I said, "Excuse me, ma'am, do you know where Brooklyn Brew? Which way we go to yeah. get to Brooklyn Brewing Brewery?" 
and she's oh yeah, I go there all the time. It's right up here in the corner. So you got a real you've got a real presence in the Williamsburg neighborhood yeah. here in the community. Um, how many how many people does Brooklyn Brewery employ? So when Ballpark. I was yeah, it's um it's kind of a tough number, especially because of the sort of collaborative relationship we have now with other breweries. Uh-huh. When I was hired, and they gave me all the information, the sheets. Right. Uh, it was it was at approximately 150. Um, I know that number oscillates, and especially on site, we don't have 150 people on site. Right. Like that's that's that would be a, uh, a wildly inflated number. I would say over the course of any day here at 79 North 11th Street in Williamsburg, we have about uh, probably around closer to 50, maybe fewer if you count everybody in the office, everybody uh, in the the cellar, brew house, warehouse, um, tasting room. So it's a, it's going to be about fifty on any given day. Right now on the weekends we don't we don't brew on the weekends. Okay. So we don't have that presence here today. Right. We're probably uh, you know a, a skeleton crew of uh, fifteen people today, including myself. So besides Utica and here, yeah, are you brewing beer anywhere else? We are. So we, we brew beer under contract uh, around the world, and those relationships are, are continuing to grow and and, and expand too. Carlsberg uh, does some brewing for us under contract in Sweden because they are essentially um, our distribution network in Europe. Right. They distribute for us. Kieran has brewed for us under contract um, in Japan. Uh, in Australia, Cooper's used to brew mm-hmm. for us under contract. Uh, so, but that relationship has changed. Um, and Brazil, we're very big in Brazil now, so we're looking to start brewing on site there. And it makes just good. It makes good business sense. It's sure. hard to keep beer fresh if you're shipping it by freight. Yeah, you're not getting the same experience as if you're drinking uh, fresh beer from someplace local. Absolutely. So Absolutely. that's that's the idea. Is we we're pretty much. Um, I haven't checked the numbers recently, and the numbers keep changing. Uh, but we have been in the last few years the number one craft beer exporter in the U.S. To put things in perspective, about half of what we do back there is for the export market. Is that right? So, how many barrel brew house do you have here? So it's a it's a fifty barrel. It's a fifty barrel brew house. Yeah. The in Utica. Um, it's it's going to be bigger. I can tell you that a lot of the, their equipment and the scale of production is much larger. Uh, they have some of the old fashioned fermentation tanks. They've been there a long time. Right. Um, those horizontal tanks. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't have exact numbers okay. for you there. I can tell you, we do produce approximately 200,000 barrels per year at that site. At that site. Yeah. And last year, your annual production for 2018 was 293,000 yeah. barrels. It's over a quarter of a million. Yeah. Wow. What uh, projections for 2019? Has anybody thought where uh, you might I be? I haven't received that that number, but I can only imagine it would expand as we continue to move into different export markets right. and to different countries where we're producing on-site. So that number will continue to increase inevitably. So, distribution. Yeah. I'm looking at the map here. How many states are you in? So I think approximately at this point, we're in 31. And then besides that, then you're in... You're in all of Scandinavia and Finland. Yeah. You're in uh, Estonia, uh, or Latvia, <laughs> or Lithuania. I always get those three countries yeah, we're, mixed we're, up. Yeah, we're in Lithuania. We, right. have, a, we have a sister brewery. All um, of Western Europe, well. Great Britain and Ireland, yeah. Brazil, Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, China, Japan, Korea, mm-hmm. Hong Kong, 
Australia, New Zealand, and then what's this here? Abu United, Dhabi? United Arab Emirates. United Arab Emirates. Yeah. Man. Yeah. That's that is that's that is a that's a widespread <laughs> distribution. It is. And I think what um, shocks people is, you know, it, we haven't, it's been slow here in the States. It's been a faster and easier distribution um, evolution right. worldwide. How would you describe the portfolio here at Brooklyn Brewery? I mean, pretty pretty robust. Any, any amount of experimental beers, um, you know, are, are going to be featured here in our tasting room at 79 North 11th Street, little plug. Uh, but I think there's been sort of a, a reimagining or a focus on core varietals as of late because I think that's essentially what's going to make your brewery sink or swim. Right. Is having proof in the pudding in those in those core beers that people, especially when you're an international brand, only so many varieties are going to make it from point A to point B. So I think you know we look at I think you're drinking the Bel Air. Um, uh, last time I checked, and maybe this number is different, uh, but the second best-selling uh, sour okay. in the U.S. Um, so I think there's been a huge focus on the Bel Air to have a, a, a well-rounded, dry-hopped uh, sour that's not too Jolly Rancher right. Um Something that's essentially a sessionable, arguably, uh, at a, a little bit over 5% ABV. But something you can drink, more, you can drink more than one of those. Yeah, refreshing. Yeah, it's yeah. not it's not too much. I think a lot of sours, and for a lot of people, IPAs are that way. They're too much. Yeah, you know. Well, you're seeing a lot of. I mean, most Gozas, Berlin or Weiss, they're they're running between four and five yeah. percent. Traditional. This is, this is just a little bit over that. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I mean that's that's what American craft beer is. It's taking traditional styles yeah. and, and kind of inflating them. Inflating the numbers, hopping them up. Or, I, you know I mean? couldn't agree with you more. We're definitely innovating. Yeah. We're definitely pushing the trend worldwide. And I think for us, too, that's been such a good thing because we've had an international presence for so long. Right. I think technically you can date our international distribution back to 1989. We distributed to Japan for the first time. Right. And I, I, I don't want to say, when I say distributed, I think we were sending X amount of cases a, a lager their way um, through through one guy uh, but we established an international presence early and now that you see Europe and the rest of the world sort of going through their own craft beer revolution um, it's nice to have that uh, established brand there to sort right. of lead the way and that's been helpful for us and it's sort of the reason why we've established different uh, sister breweries around uh, not just Europe but around the world um, in uh, Lithuania, we have a sister brewery, believe it or not. Uh, Sweden. Sweden's our second largest market behind New the New York City metro area. Wow. Um, for a long time, uh, we'd been uh, the best-selling beer in Sweden. I think, I don't want to uh, lie and say we still are, but I think if we're not you're still, in the top, we're, yeah. we're, still, in, we're yeah. still there. Yeah, if you're in the top five, you're, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is big. And right. so, so many of the, of the people who come here are either Swedish, they're Norwegian, uh, I think, let's see, at this point, uh, Norway is, is our, uh, our fifth largest market at this at this point. Um, France, all of a sudden, we're, we're big in France. Um, and also, and not to, you know, there, there is uh, some good some good French beer and some great beer from southern Belgium. But France, as a culture, has been more wine-centric. Wine, yeah. 
Yep. You know, yep. especially if you want to talk grape grain line and it kind of cuts it. Yep. Um, so both you know geographically and culturally, yep. wine culture. But we're breaking in and people are celebrating beer more and more in France. You, you have a Belgian on on draft today here. We actually have two saisons, and one of the one of the uh, the newest or the freshest saisons we have, Thousand and One Nights, was brewed by one of our uh, brewers here on site in the back, Ayad, um, who, believe it or not, is an Iraqi refugee who we hired uh, through a refugee hiring program, um, which is another we you mentioned philanthropic community involvement. Community yeah, involvement. we'll get yeah. Um, but we hired uh, we hired him. Um, on a temporary basis, and at the time he spoke very little English, couldn't really uh, read English, uh, was a super hard worker. Um, he proved that he could be counted upon, he fixed things, learned the English language really quickly, and we eventually hired him full time. Um, he started in the packaging hall and is now a brewer, and he's, he's brewing beer for us, and he's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. You know, this country was built by immigrants, sure. and you know, that's most. 99.9% of them that come here are good people and they're just yeah. looking for a better life, just like your forefathers and my forefathers were. That's why they came here and that's yeah. all they want because this is still, this is the land of opportunity. Absolutely. And, you know, we'll get to community involvement and philanthropic endeavors here in a second, but what are your flagships? What do you sell the most of right here in the New York metro market? Flagship, I mean, it's. Flagship is still going to be Brooklyn Lager. That comprises 60% of our sales uh, worldwide. We're still one of the we're the in the top three tap handles here in bars in New York City. Um, so you could you could you could you could reasonably state that you're the largest independent craft brewery tap handle wise in the New York absolutely. metro market. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think that's a stretch. No, right. No, no, absolutely. So. But after your lager, what's uh, I would say behind that would be summer ale, summer it's, and it's just about summer ale season. Mm -hmm. um, that's our second best-selling beer. Is that a Kolsch style? It's not a Kolsch. Technically, it's a, a it's a pale ale. Okay. But, but similar to a Kolsch. I mean, uh -huh. it's going to have those those fruity notes. Um, it's it's not you know, uh, it, it is solidly an ale and, so, and arguably solidly a pale. Uh, so that one's close behind. I think if we had to. Um, Name a third flagship. It's going to be the Bel Air Sour. That okay. Yeah, because there's there's been it's, a lot of it's tasty, huge demand, and a lot of our production has been geared toward pumping that out, especially lately. And those, those tanks that you saw when you walked in, those are our souring tanks. They're used exclusively right for Bel Air, and we're feeding the rest of the world essentially Bel Air Sour from those tanks. Uh, we're starting actually. I don't want. I don't want to lie. We're starting to brew uh, Bel Air in other places and experimenting and right. trying to get it right. But uh, QA quality assurance is a big part of what we do, and it's always difficult. To, you want to make sure that the beer that's reaching the rest of the world is up to the same standards, right? As the beer that's leaving, right? Williams. And when you're dealing with sours and then wild yeast strains and everything, then you've got you've got yeah. a different you've got a different uh, consideration when Absolutely. you're brewing, right? Right. Absolutely. Community involvement. Yeah. What uh, What's Brooklyn Brewery doing here uh, in the community, and what other philanthropic uh, uh, projects have they got going on? Have you guys got going on? Sure. Um, so historically, we've we've always we've always donated uh, to certain organizations here 
in uh, in Williamsburg or in Brooklyn. I know, it, funny, I, I kind of, my, my in here at the Brooklyn Brewery was, at the time when I applied, my, my wife was working for the Brooklyn Academy of Music, okay. which is essentially the Lincoln Center, if, if you know, uh, of Manhattan here in Brooklyn. It's the center of the arts community. Uh, it's been around since the mid-19th century. Uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, attended an opera there once upon a time. And didn't get shot. Didn't get shot. That's yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, they are um, essentially the, the center of the arts community here. And they've been um, donating money uh, since the beginning to, to BAM. And part of what my wife did was to secure donations. Uh, so she had an established relationship here, and she knew that they were hiring. And she's the one who told me you should, you should absolutely go for it. You love, you love beer. Um, so we've, for a long time, we've had a relationship with them, other uh, arts organizations. Uh, in the past, uh, and we continue to do this, uh, we host community events on site in Williamsburg uh, where we, we donate beer um, and we donate proceeds. So we're, we're always, we're fundraising, uh, using the tasting room to host fundraising events. For instance, Fortran's um, Portation Alternatives here on site. Uh, another one of our long-time philanthropic endeavors is, um, and I'm gonna, right now like the acronym is escaping me, but we, we hire um, refugees and people who are, are coming from places that are, are either war-torn uh, war war, or, or are coming from famine, yeah. or, you know. Um, and we've done that for a long time. And I think, you know, with, with folks like Ayad, it's, it sort of demonstrates um, how, how goodwill can go a long way. Absolutely. Especially with, with naturalizing uh, people who are coming over here and utilizing people who have that, that strength, desire to work hard and commit themselves to a purpose. And Ayad's that type of guy. That's commendable. Yeah. To be involved in something like that. Yeah. So, what was the best day that you've ever had here? When did, when did you... What day did something happen to go? You went like, yes, this is why I'm here. My a uh, couple of favorite days. It's it's tough to say. There are a lot of good days here. And I won't say that the job isn't stressful. And we all go like sometimes like, give me a beer, pour me a beer immediately. Um, more recently, uh, for instance, we had a um, a Chinese uh, news channel come in, a Chinese American, um, but they they came in and they wanted to interview me and have me. Uh, go through some production stuff and, and give them a tour. I, just, I think being mic'd up and being able to represent not only a company, but um, craft beer, being, being sort of an ambassador for what we do here was one of those days, realizations like, yeah, this is, this is a great right. job. Uh, you know, I, get to, I get to not only show off what we do, but be proud of what we do and, and, and just enjoy what I'm doing. Right. Um, so that was, that was a great day. I think too, I'm gonna sound like such a fanboy when I say this, but like even uh, <laughs> hearing Steve tell some of his stories and getting to know certain things I, I I didn't know, and then afterwards, you know, having just talking with Steve and having like, hey, hey, Will, I want to ask you something. Like, you know, as somebody in the industry and somebody who's been a fan of this brand for so long, it's great to be able to like, you know, talk one on one with somebody that you admire. Yeah, that that 
considering what that man's his story and his background, and he comes to you wanting to know your opinion or advice. Yeah. yeah. Or even if he needs uh, help, you know, it's a simple just like, hey, Will. It's like, ooh, how you doing, Steve? What can I do for you? <laughs> so. Again, sounding like a fanboy, but I think a lot of us in craft beer, in beer in general, right. become you know, those types of fans. So, anything coming down the line with Brooklyn Brewery that uh, fans out there of uh, the beer might like to hear about ahead of time? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you're going to see a lot more Bel Air Sour on shelves um, being distributed to different markets where it wasn't available previously. Uh, One of the the cool things we've done more recently is to uh, sort of collaborate with the Stonewall Inn, uh, which has been a sort of um, at the center of the gay rights community, not only in New York, oh, but yeah, in the world. Right. That's where the riots happened back in the yeah. um, oh, okay. late yeah. 60s. Oh, um, yeah. So, no, no, yeah. Okay. When you said Stonewall Inn, I said, man, I've heard that name. Yeah. 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 So we, it, it was kind of cool. A few uh, buddies of mine and people in the marketing department were invited over, and the current owner kind of just talked us through the history, and the reason why we were there, we've... we've collaborated to uh, make a beer, uh, well, not only for their bar, because the, the, that beer is going to start reaching more bars moving forward, but um, uh, a light, sessionable IPA that isn't too bitter, uh, but you know, isn't the type of beer that the brewers in the back are going to be like, you know, they're going to roll their eyes over, because a lot of times when you make beers... Um, for a, a larger audience, so to speak, you dumb uh, down. sometimes the purists are, yeah. especially yeah. the guys in the back. But it's a beer that appeals not only to regular beer drinkers and brewers, but a, a beer that appeals to people who wouldn't even think about drinking a beer. Right. You know what I mean? Um, so I'm excited to see that beer not only be featured at the Stonewall Inn, but at different bars moving forward. And we're starting to bottle it as well. Um, and initially, when we talk about uh, philanthropy, a lot of the, the, the money um, that's being invested and, and being used to purchase that beer was being put toward organizations that were going to help uh, LGBTQ youth um, here in the U.S. and places where they were underserved or communities underserved. Well, before we get out of here, I'm going to give you, I'm going to throw you some questions. This is five questions, the lightning round. Okay. Uh, well, remember, there are no right or wrong answers, only right or wrong people. This, uh, your category is famous Brooklynites. Oh, yeah. All right. Okay. All right. Try. Number one, Mel Brooks or Larry David? Mel Brooks. All right. Number two, Al Capone or Bugsy Siegel? Al Capone. All right. Number three, Brooklyn Dodgers pitcher Sandy Koufax or New York Yankees shortstop Phil Rizzuto? I'm going to say Sandy Koufax. Well, Sandy Koufax. Yeah, left-hander for the Dodgers. I'm going to say Sandy Koufax. All right. You should, yes. That's the Brooklyn (laughs) Dodgers. Number four, Jerry Seinfeld or Barbara Streisand? Barbara Streisand. There we go. And last but not least... From the world of pop music, okay. <laughs> Adam Yauch of the Beastie Boys or Peter Chris of Kiss? I'm going to say Adam. You got it. Get- ding, 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 ding. Correct, Mundo. They get all Will, five? Will Harbinson, thank you so much for Thanks, sitting Alan. down really with me. I appreciate it. Uh, and uh, I'm glad that we were able to get to Brooklyn. And yeah, Brooklyn for Bur- Cheers. Cheers to you, sir. Thank you. Thanks again to Will, and also a big thank you to Paige Snyder 
the social media manager for Brooklyn Brewery, for helping us get things set up with Will and all the good folks there at the tasting room. It's a great space, a really, really great community. Um, with me on our visit was Mary Lee, along with our friends Brian and Sheila, and John and Gila, and uh, the folks at Brooklyn Brewery, they couldn't have been more hospitable. Uh, they made us feel right at home in the heart of Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn Brewery is located at number one Brewers Row and 79 North 11th Street in the Williamsburg neighborhood on the north side of Brooklyn, New York. The easiest way to get there if you're in Manhattan is take the L train from the 14th Street station to the Bedford stop in Brooklyn and then walk seven blocks to the brewery. The tap room is open Monday through Thursday, 5 to 11 p.m., Fridays 5 to midnight, Saturday noon to midnight, and Sunday noon to 8 p.m. They offer general tours on the weekends and also technical tours and small batch gatherings during the week, and uh, you might want to check out the schedule on that. They don't have a kitchen, but there's plenty of good food trucks and small restaurants in the neighborhood, and you're more than welcome to bring in food from the outside. And they are dog-friendly, as long as your dog is human-friendly and on a lead. To learn about everything going on with them, you can check them out on Facebook at The Brooklyn Brewery and on Instagram at Brooklyn Brewery Tasting Room or on their website, brooklynbrewery.com. Hey, ha, da, 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 yeah. ha, hey. Cardion What's the rumpus? Now it's time for What's the Rumpus with Tony. What's going on in the world of craft brewing? Tony Rehagen, freelance journalist. How are you doing, Tony? Doing well, Alan. How about yourself? How was New York? Yeah, it was wonderful, and I'm finally feeling halfway decent for the first time in a number of weeks. But yeah, New York was fantastic. Uh, Brooklyn Brewery, if, um, if any of you out there listening are anywhere near there, you need to go see those folks. They are fantastic. They make some great beer. They're very philanthropic. Well, you heard the you heard the stuff we were talking about on the on the interview, but uh, yeah, I had a great time. Uh, we went to see To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, Aaron Sorkin's uh, version of it, and uh, with Jeff Daniels. And I'm going to tell you what that's a powerful, powerful play. It really is. Uh, yeah, it Big might. Time. Yeah, it it might be set in 1930s Alabama, but. There's a lot of commentary there that's very much um, applicable to today's situation. I suggest uh, anybody, and they're going to have a traveling show, I'm sure, soon. If that comes to a city near you, you need to go see that play. It's it's really good. That's fantastic. That was Saturday night. And then Sunday, we uh, went over to the Upright Citizens Brigade, um, you know, uh, Amy Poehler, uh, all of these, I can't remember now, all of these different alums, comedy alums, they started out there. It's an improv comedy group, and every once in a while, a Saturday Night Live person will, you know, pop in. But the reason we got tickets to go to that was because uh, Greta and Bill's son, uh, Greta and Bill Ratliff, our friends, uh, their mm-hmm. son Connor, he's in the cast. And oh, wow, so, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, and he got his tickets, and... Then uh, we got to meet uh, from Kansas City uh, on Saturday Night Live, uh, Heidi Gardner, and uh, got to talking to her after the show and found out that her father used to work down at uh, Dick's Halfway Inn down on the lake, Big Big Dick's Halfway Inn, 
yeah, yeah. <laughs> where they do the minnow shots. Yeah, so, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, she she used uh, or he used to work. Her dad worked down there, so she was familiar with Mid Missouri, and so that was nice. Yeah, we had a great time. Uh, you know, quick weekend. We flew out Friday. We came back Monday. It was it was fantastic. So That's awesome. Well, well, Connor must get his sense of humor from his mother then. Connor, Connor, <laughs> Connor's one of the funniest guys I've ever met, and uh, he uh, he did a great impression of a lobster uh, <laughs> getting ready to be thrown into a pot. So <laughs> anyway, yeah, the Upright Citizens Brigade. Want to give them a shout out? So, well, great. what do you got for us this week? Well, I was, you know, this is I just kind of try to pull stories sometimes from my from my life, but also what's going on in the news. And this one kind of came together. Um, as anyone who's visited me knows, I, I keep a beer fridge in my basement, which was actually the spare fridge that Aaron, my wife, bought to keep, you know, excess food and stuff like that, that I just basically have commandeered for my, my craft beer habit. Um, and I keep it pretty well stocked. But I'm like most people, like when I travel, especially like I'm I'm buying beers way faster than I can drink them because I don't, I don't you know, I don't drink like six beers a day. I know that. that I know that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So when I drink, you got to prioritize, right? And it's not always based on what you're in the mood for because you want to get the best out of your beer when you get it, especially if you brought it from somewhere else or paid a lot of money for it, as some of these craft beers are. So a lot of times it's just a question of how long the beer has been in the fridge. Um, and this is a, this is a big issue uh, because the craft beers, you know, craft brewers, as they expand their offerings, um, they care about this, too, because many microbreweries know that it's a crowded marketplace, that drinkers are fickle and flighty, and that for a lot of brewers, they're only going to get one shot at hooking a drinker so that you want your beer at its best when, when they get it. Um, some of that, as we've talked about before, is like the packaging, you know, air and light are the dreaded enemies of beer. But right. the third force is the one that destroys everything, which is time yep. and age. That two-handed, they go bad. Yeah, that two-handed thief on the wall. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, it, and, you know, it's not and it's not just the packaging. Sometimes it's it's the ingredients um, that, that age, you know, uh, that, that flavor can fade. It can oxidize mm-hmm. and taste flat and bland. A lot of things can happen to it. So, anyway, brewers have taken to, to addressing this on their packaging. You know, and you you remember the big thing that the, the Anheuser-Busch did with the Born on Date. Born on I Date, mean, yes. yeah, yeah. But but that's only half the equation. That 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 doesn't that doesn't necessarily help you if you don't right. know. You know, you just have half the equation. What's the so, shelf life of your beer? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Like I know when it was born. How long can I keep it? Of course, with that, I mean, yeah. chances are seventy five percent is already bad. I you know that promotion kind of backfired on them a little bit because then uh, you know I remember when that first came out and people would come into the bar and we'd get them a bottle and they said, no, this beer's too old. Well, no, it's not too old. It's not out of code. It's just, it wasn't made two weeks ago. Oh, this was, right. made, this was made six weeks ago. And I said, well, it's still fine, but it kind of backfired on them a little bit, but anyway. Well, no, totally. And, I'm, and I'm, this is an argument between uh, Aaron and I, you know, I, I grew up in a grocery store where we didn't get milk till its expiration date. And she's the one that, like, admits the stroke of midnight, she'll dump it down the sink if yeah. there's anything left. And yeah. I'm like, you can tell when milk is bad. And the same with beer. Like, you can tell. Yeah. You, it, it, there's not, it's not a question. You know, it, it, it happens. Um, and some, some beer brewers have done better by this. Like Stone Brewing out from San Diego, they have not only a best buy date, but well, a lot of beers have that. But, like, they also have an enjoy after series for some beers that get better after aging. Oh, okay. Um, a lot of you know a lot of beers don't even do that it's not a standard practice with the craft brewer association so sometimes you're kind of in a, in a lurch so I, I kind of did a little bit of research to try to find out um you know how long your beers can 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 last and so, what did you discover well basically uh 
there are some things that were meant to meant to be stored to, that are meant to last a little bit. Uh, one of them is uh, the bottle conditioned beers, and right. as as you talked about, in, I know in your history podcast, uh, it involves you know not pumping the CO2 artificially into it that right. lets the yeast carbonate and ferment the beer naturally within the bottle. Right. Um, and it also matters greatly by style. Uh, for instance, and this has to do with the ingredients. For instance, like IPAs are usually best consumed fresh or within two to three months because hops degrade very rapidly. Right. But but pales, light lagers, uh, your wheats, and your browns are usually best within 120 days of packaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, darker beers, stouts and porters, they can last a little bit longer, say like 180 days. But there again, if you, you have to look real closely because if they have coffee in it, coffee will go will degrade faster than most like most other stout ingredients oh, so if you have a okay. coffee, if you have a coffee stout it will it will and it, it won't get bad but you'll lose the coffee flavor yeah, as time it won't, goes on. It, won't be, it won't be as uh, bright and pronounced exactly i grabbed a, a winter grind from the back of the fridge that i found there i uh, uh i found boss back in the back and popped it and it was still really good but it wasn't it didn't have that crisp straight out of the that fresh taste of, of the coffee that and that's always my fault uh, for, for keeping it too long. Right. And then, and then the next tier is kind of your ba- barrel aged uh, beers, your sours, your imperials, like your double and triple hops and malted. Um, they can go longer. They can, they can pass and passing days can mellow a strong, a real strong ABV beer. Yeah. To, to, right. So they to, to taste so boozy and a uh, certain sours actually have leftover sour, uh, leftover souring agents that actually continue to evolve for years. So they actually change. Uh, I know, uh, it's, a uh, Bredenomyces. I'm going to yeah, screw that Bredenomyces. Up. That, yep. Yeah, the Belgian yeast that's added, and it, it basically it needs months to develop its flavor. So you want to keep that longer. Um, but that's that's led to a big hobby that's that's big with a lot of brewers now, about a lot of beer drinkers now is um, is is cellaring your beer just like you would a wine or anything like that. Um, yeah. And there are cert- there are certain beers that are, are really good to 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 cellar, um, such as like you want them to be at least eight. 8% ABV. And I got this from draftmag.com. They had a kind of a, a cool guide um, uh, in brief to cellaring beer. Right. But it, yeah, it, it basically, you want to start with something that's at least 8% ABV. So uh, that, that is low in hops as bittering compounds. Like I said, they break down over time. Um, and you watch and really read your labels. We talk about this all the time, but like do your research. And a lot of this stuff is on the label, even if there isn't a born on date. Um, they're little buzzwords. Like I said, a bottle condition, like we said, having those that, that fermentation and the the carbon dioxide put into the beer in in the carbonation in inside the bottle. Um, you look for reserve uh, brewers, um, reserve beers, which are, you know, rare releases that are usually like kind of anniversary beers and stuff right. that are intended to be aged. We talked about the bread of Mices, uh, the, the Belgian yeast. That's a good thing to do. Um, vertical uh, vertical releases that are beers that are like, you know, released annually by the year. I, like, for instance, I just bought the Founders Kentucky Breakfast out, and I bought the 2018 and the 2019 yeah. um, to, to last. And then the, also the barrel-aged beers, uh, which usually contain, you know, the big flavors that, that kind of like we've talked about mellow yeah. with time. So let, what, what would you say the, the most important thing is, is uh... – uh, higher ABV? Yeah, I think so. I think if you're, if you're going to keep a beer a long time, the, the big ones are, are the ways to do it. And you'll see that they come in the bombers, the big bottles. Right. Um, so if it's like at least 8% ABV, chances are it'll age pretty well. Obviously, you want to do the, the old standards, keep it away from light, keep right. it cool, right. um, and and keep it sealed. But uh, and then after you after you pop it, obviously you kind of you have to drink it. Uh, you, you don't want to you don't want to keep it for a while after that. But 
yeah, it's it, it, looking for the looking really reading the labels and doing your research. And we we harp on this every week, but right. like knowing your beer, man, and That's and true. knowing knowing how long it'll last. Yeah, and, and like I said, like and I didn't know about that until I bought a bought a bomber of a millennial uh, perennial sump coffee stout. They were like, you're gonna want to drink this before others, just because coffee will degrade. Right. I mean, not in any hurry. So it was kind of I moved a little f- further to the front of the line. But again, you can get there's there's a nice balance there, and then. Sometimes even the brewers don't know, like you mentioned, like that. That's all experimentation, which is what's exciting about it. Right. What do you got planned over the next couple of days? I'm gonna see. Uh, actually, I'm gonna be home for a little bit. I'm heading to. I just got back from Las Vegas uh, for the NCAA tournament. Oh. And and uh, betting on the betting on the games and the sports books. So I didn't, I didn't lose my shirt, which was nice, and I had some good good beer and and plenty of plenty of entertainment. Um, I'm home for a little bit, then I'm heading to uh, Washington D.C. area uh, in a couple weeks for a story, uh, okay. and also to visit my brother and hopefully try some new beer out there. Well, tell Chris I said hi. Uh, I will do. Next week I'm headed to Oklahoma and Texas, so oh, that uh, awesome. we'll we'll have postcards from the road. Tony nice. Rehagen, freelance journalist. Thanks, Tony. Have safe travels, yeah. and I'll talk to you next week. Sounds good. Thank you, Alan. Uh, take care now. Bye. <laughs> You've been listening to The Brews Traveler. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out our website, thebrewstraveler.com. Cheers! Well, cheers, everybody, and thanks again for listening. Please follow us over on Facebook and Instagram at The Brews Traveler Podcast. You can send me a message over there. Tell me what you think. If you have any suggestions, questions, or ideas, please let me know. Or if you'd rather, send me an email, cheers at thebrewstraveler.com. Please go over to iTunes, give us a five-star rating and a glowing review. It would mean so much. Another reminder, Gaelic Storm coming to Jefferson City August 29th. Watch this space for tickets and information about the show. The soundtrack for the Bruce Traveler is so graciously provided by our friends Gaelic Storm. Check them out, what's coming up for them in 2019 at their website, gaelicstorm.com. Marketing consultation provided by Mission Digital Marketing. So, until next time, I don't see you at the pub or tap room somewhere in Arkansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Louisiana, or Mississippi. I'll see you right here on the podcast. Drink locally, think globally, take care of each other, take care of the earth. It's everything we've got. Merrily, as always, honey, you are the measure of my dreams. So thanks again, everyone, for listening. And so long for just a while. And when I was a baby boy, me mammy says to me Don't play around with them Irish girls, they never let you be So I went off to Dublin to see what I could see They filled me up with whiskey boys They never let me be, I miss my home Chimney stacks in the cobble streets I know Wherever I go, when I find myself alone I close my eyes and the memories take me home when I was a little boy, me mammy says to me Don't mess around with them French girls, they'll never let you be I took a trip to Gay Paris to see what I could see They filled me up with hula la They never let me be, I miss my home
York City to see what I could see. They put mustard on me, hot dog lads. They never let me be, I miss my home. Chimney's next to the couple's streets I know. Wherever I go, I find myself alone. I close my eyes and the memories take me home. Said to me, I miss my home. Chimney stacks in the cold streets I know. Wherever I go, when I find myself alone, I close my eyes and the memories take me home. And now I am an old man at the age of 93. I'm on my way to heaven, boys, to see what I can see. St. Peter's at the pearly gates as he opens up the door. He says, You're not finished, Jeffy boy. You're going back for more, I miss my home Chimney stacks in the couple of streets I know Wherever I go, when I find myself alone I close my eyes and the memories take me home I miss my home Chimney stacks in the couple of streets I know Wherever I go, when I find myself alone I close my eyes and the memories take me home I miss my home The past and present wilt, I have filled them, emptied them, and proceed to fill my next fold of the future. Listener up there, what have you to confide to me? Look in my face while I snuff the sidle of evening. Talk honestly, no one else hears you. And I stay only a minute longer. Do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. Walt Whitman, American poet, essayist, journalist, author of The Leaves of Grass, editor of the Brooklyn Eagle from 1846 to 1848, born May 31, 1819, Huntington, Long Island, New York, died March 26, 1892, Camden, New Jersey.